You're live. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. Today, I'm joined by arguably two of the brightest minds in the world of scaling startups. I've reached out uh, to the Klingons for interstellar domination, and they've revealed David David Schkontel and uh, Steve Blank. David, you're up on screen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Steve, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Cool. Um, so for our viewers uh, around the world who have been potentially living in a tree or under a rock um, and, they, <laughs> and, they, and they don't know uh, who uh, Steve Blank is, let's start with Steve. Um, why don't you give us, uh, Steve, the elevator pitch for our, our viewers and startup founders and entrepreneurs around the world? Well, I think the relevant part, uh, Matt, for this audience is uh, I was a practitioner for a couple of decades. I did eight startups. Uh, uh, box score at the end of uh, a couple decades were uh, four IPOs. and But more importantly for this conversation, two craters so deep they have their own iridium layer, meaning I learned a lot more from the failures than I did from the successes. And then after that, I co-created the lean startup movement with uh, Eric Ries and Alexander Osterwalder, the three components of lean customer development, agile engineering, and business model design. And then people like David made it much better. <laughs> but But... But the idea that startups weren't smaller versions of large companies and, you know, large companies execute startups search for business models. That was kind of the epiphany I had, which kind of kicked off this whole model that like we have different tools than people running IBM or General Motors. Um, and, uh, and by the way, later on, we discovered that large companies aren't bigger versions than startups, but that's another podcast for another group. And so I now teach at, uh, I teach at Stanford, uh, in both the uh, both the engineering school and now uh, national security policy as well. So you've upgraded from startups to national security policy. You know, uh, innovation uh, and the, and the problem of creating new things are kind of the same but different. Um, <laughs> you know, one you're worrying about your job, the other is you're worrying about your country. Yeah, well, <clears throat> pick your struggle, you know. <laughs> so, David, uh, let's bring you into the conversation. What's the backstory to you? Uh, what does our viewers around the world need to know? Yeah, well, well, certainly not nearly as impressive as Steve. Uh, in fact, I've long been an admirer of his work. And one of the things that actually got me involved in entrepreneurship education was reading his book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, which was just a wonderful framework for looking at how to start a business. So my background, also a practitioner in the entrepreneurship space, mostly in healthcare, went on to the venture capital space and then ultimately wound up in design with a firm called IDEO for about 10 years, which is a design and innovation consultancy that focuses on design thinking. Joined the faculty of Kellogg about 10 years ago to teach entrepreneurship and design at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. And recently wrote a book with my co-author, Lauren Nordgren, who's also a Kellogg faculty member called The Human Element, which is less about how to create a new idea and get it uh, properly featured and uh, into market, more about how to make sure that the audience you're designing that offer for is ready to receive it and how to design the introduction of the thing to the world, something we call friction theory. And so uh, that's me in a nutshell, and I'm happy to be here. 
Well, it's a privilege is really all mine. So thank you guys comes to scaling uh, startups. Well, for most startups, you know, or a good chunk of them, they don't matter. They just kind of ignore the business model and, and do whatever their investors tell them and, and <laughs> go for the biggest numbers or whatever traction of the week or the <laughs> metrics. But, but if you're really, you know, trying to build a real business, uh, um, you actually uh, want to validate all your hypotheses about the key components of commercialization. You know, who are my customers? What are the segments they're in? What are they, what do those archetypes look like? Um, you know, what are their pains and gains and jobs to be done? And, and for each customer segment, what's the value proposition, which is a fancy word for, you know, what features or functions or pains and gains do they want to get? And then you also want to validate all these other things. What's my optimum distribution channel? Is it just simply an app store or is it direct sales or is it the licensing? What's the right revenue model? And sp- particularly for scale, the thing you've been testing, hopefully all the way up to here is, you know, how do I get, keep and grow customers with the business model can, but customer relationships. But they're all about a set of activities that I've done to how do I acquire customers? How do I, you know, make sure they don't attrit? And then how do I cross sell them, upsell them and do other activities? And then all the other things about, you know, do I understand my revenue model, profit? And then the kind of the backstage of a company, what are the critical strategic activities I need to become expert in? Is it machine learning or whatever? What do I need to own of those activities internally? And what can I outsource into partners? And then what are my costs? That's kind of the nine boxes to Osterwalder's business model canvas. And I kind of think of it as kind of a canonical check sheet, a check checklist of the things you ought to be able to answer before you hit the scale button. Because if you don't know those answers, then you might as well just take all the money you raised or got from friends and family, step outside your building, put it in a pile in the parking lot and light it on fire. Um, mm. Because that's where it's going to go. Um, so, so the purpose of the business model is to articulate, that is actually be able to describe to others, what were your initial hypotheses, that is guesses, you know, and I used to in a non-public forum, have an adjective in front of it, you're just effing guessing. You know, what were your initial guesses about all these components? What have you, what have you tested? That is, what have you got out of the building and run experiments and A-B testing and MVPs and all these buzzwords we use? And what evidence do you have that if I give you a dollar, you're going to get me N dollars after you spend that dollar? That's the notion of scale. It's not let's go spend the money. It's that there's a force multiplier that I am convinced is going to happen because I have some data that, that says I'm likely to hit the target, not just throw, throw random darts. Does that help for, for a startup? Yeah, it does. And we're going to double click on some of that stuff. It's uh, your view on two things. What are some of the key considerations for creating a successful business model from your perspective? And what is the role or more better said, how does friction theory play out in the business model context? Yeah, uh, I mean, I agree with everything that Steve articulated. I think he laid out the 90 building blocks of Osterwalder's canvas really, really nicely. And I think the only thing I would add to what Steve said is the beauty of the business model canvas in some ways is its simplicity. It's a prototype of what a business model could be. And as Steve mentioned, these are hypotheses that you want to systematically go out and test and once you figured out cause and effect, I, I agree that that's, that's the appropriate time to scale. Um, f- friction theory is 
uh, less again focused on the idea and more focused on the audience. And what we know to be true is that even though you come up with a great new product or a great new service or a great new strategy or, or business model, it doesn't mean that those you're hoping to help will willingly accept that new idea. And so what friction theory attempts to do is demystify the different sources of resistance to new ideas from the very audience you're trying to help. And we, through the book and through the framework, have broken down uh, resistance into four different categories that apply to four different use cases. And I'm happy to dive into that if you like. Yeah, sure. Um, I think let's talk about the business model canvas because you guys keep bringing it up. I've actually had Alexandra on the show. So for anyone watching uh, and who's keen to get the backstory on that, go and check out the previous shows. Um, so I'm going to bring it, bring it up for, for everybody. Um, so on the business model canvas, uh, Steve and David, this is a question to uh, both of you. Um, where do you start? Like if you were to look at the, these, uh, these the nine elements of the business model, key partners, activities, resources, value propositions, customer relationships, channels, customer segments, revenue streams, and cost structure. When you look at these uh, elements, is there one that you start with or is there one, I know it's a difficult one, and lots of context and nuance here in the answer, I'm sure. But is there one that is most important to scale a startup? David, you want to go first? or Well, sure. I mean, I think it depends on the kind of business you're in. I mean, if you're in a biotech business, maybe a key resource or an asset like a molecule is a place to start. But let's assume it's a consumer and enterprise business. My belief, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same as Steve's, start with a customer. Because until you understand, as Steve mentioned, pains, gains, and jobs, what progress they're trying to make, how they're trying to make that progress, the way in which you deliver value to that customer could be very, very different. So when we teach business model design, particularly in the framework of the business model canvas, we always start with the customer first and the understanding of what those customers' needs are. Um, and then you asked what, what's crucial to making the business successful, uh, there's a couple of different elements. It's sort of a trick question, but customer relationships, how to how to grow those customers and continue those relationships, particularly in a consumer and enterprise business, feels like a particularly important one from my lens. I'm not sure if Steve feels differently. Steve? Yeah, so the short answer is yes, I agree with David. <laughs> the, the more color is he really did point out something that, that I want to double down on that, and it's a little orthogonal to your question about scale, but more importantly about the types of businesses starting in different sides of the canvas. Just as a heuristic, if you're in a, you know, e-commerce or web something, you typically start in the right, or even tech, regular tech, hardware, software, you typically start in the right-hand side of the canvas. And we could argue whether you start with a customer or the value prop, but that's where you start. But if you're doing life sciences, the biggest issues are typically regulatory issues, reimbursement issues, et cetera. And you really need to be paying, uh, instead of kind of lip service to the left side of the canvas, some really detailed um, um, attention to that. And so sometimes we even start them in help me understand the regulatory issues about, you know, do you need a PMA or 510K or, oh, my gosh, you know, does this need a, you know, um, phase one through three approval because it's a therapeutic. That said, um, where do you start uh, for almost everything else other than life sciences is kind of a funny story. When I was a, a founder and VP of marketing companies, I was in tech companies, and we always started with the tech. 
Not that it was the right, right thing to do, but Steve, here's the tech. Go, go find the customers. So therefore, I was just given the value proposition, trying to search for the customer segment. Now, as we've gotten smarter in, in the world, gee, I would probably start with the customer segment. But if your technical founders have just, we've just invented anti-gravity, you, you got that value proposition and now you're in search for that customer segment. And, and remember that combination of whichever one you start with, value prop or customer segment, that magic word, product market fit, is exactly that connection between those first two boxes. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a life scientist, the two most critical ones are value proposition and customer segment. And that simply means you're trying to figure out which customers care about which feature sets or which part of the feature sets or which feature sets does what customer care about. You can start with either end, but you're looking for the fit where eventually a customer will say, I got to have that now. I don't care if it's even done or I need to sign up or be on the beta or something that they're, I have a phrase of their pupils dilate and their heart rate goes up and their breathing gets heavy and they won't let you leave the room, you know, after you've demoed or showed it to them. And, and by the way, all that is a precursor to scale. If you haven't found signs of product market fit, you fall into the death spiral of, again, premature scaling because your investor said you ought to scale or your co-founder said you ought to scale. But, you know, it's kind of like buying the wedding ring before you went on the first date. You know, you, you kind of want to find that evidence of product market fit first. Well, David, and then just, what to, do you think? just to build on, on what Steve's saying, which I agree with, it's even more complicated in multi-sided business models, right? So yeah. Steve's talking about a business model where there's one customer that needs one or, or a couple of value propositions to address those needs. Many people are trying to build businesses where there are actually multiple customer segments, which mean you need multiple value propositions. And sometimes those aren't always in perfect sync. For example, I'm guessing most of your listeners use Google or use LinkedIn, my guess is very few of them actually pay for the ability to do it, which means somebody else has to pay, which is advertisers or marketers or recruiters. So the value proposition of these for the advertisers, marketers, and recruiters is going to be different than the value proposition for the end user. And what that does is it makes your business model doubly complicated. So for each different customer segment you have, you may have very different value propositions, which is both exciting and also complicating. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. You guys agree a lot. Is there something you don't agree on when it comes to business model design and scaling up a startup? 
I don't know. Keep asking well, questions. Maybe we'll get there. We have to find out. We have to get at least <laughs> one thing you disagree about. There's too much agreeing going on yeah. So let's. Well, Matt, the, 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 I want to go back to this agreement stuff because it's pretty important for some of your young listeners, and and young, I mean younger than me, um, which, <laughs> which you know, I was around when dinosaurs ruled the earth. But 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 there's a key idea here, which is why there's a lot of agreement. It's hard to believe, but in the 20th century, there was no methodology or tool set or rules at all for entrepreneurs. I mean, today we could argue about, is it lean? Is it Six Sigma? Is it like something else or whatever? But we're at least talking about methodologies that is tools that as a founder, you start thinking about, oh, the best practices, you do X or you do Y, you do Z. It's important for founders to just kind of know and giggle hysterically that in the 20th century, investors without ever saying these words but implicitly did it for 25 years told founders you're nothing more than a smaller version of a large company anything mm-hmm. a large company does you do they hire a sales marketing biz dev on day one you do that they write five-year forecasts on day one you do that they write the business plan and then execute the plan and god forbid you actually changed anything you were like building that deviated from the plan will fire you I mean, this notion of a pivot didn't even exist. A pivot was you failed rather than it's an integral part. So I just want everybody to understand the things we're talking about, which we're arguing about the nuances or actually agreeing on the nuances, is is actually just a fundamental breakthrough. It's like we've crawled out of the ocean and gotten legs and are breathing oxygen for the first time. It's kind of like there's a new species of founder that takes for granted some of these things. The other thing, by the way, Matt, the fact that you and I and David are having this conversation and it's available worldwide to anyone, do you understand how insanely crazy that would have been in the 20th century where this knowledge was limited to, you know, your coffee bandwidth with VC that you could physically find? The, the, you know, the Internet made this information democratize it. These methodologies democratized it. The, the access of Amazon Web Services gave computing, turned it into a utility like electricity. Those things transformed entrepreneurship from a narrow craft to something that's just widely available and accessible. Sorry for the soliloquy, but I think just setting that, that context of why we agree, it's mm. like asking us, do we think oxygen is a good idea? <laughs> right. These are, these are sort of laws of nature. And, and, yeah, and yeah. ask something more controversial. <laughs> I will. Okay. In fact, you know what? I'm going to get my community to be super controversial later. Yeah. Inver- invariably, you're going to disagree around when it comes to real world application. <laughs> Family show. Family show. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so uh, David, just maybe to uh, stick with you for a moment, where does it go wrong? Like, what would you say are some commonalities that you see in the world of scaling up or business model design, like we touched on the importance of customer segments, the yeah. customer being the, you know, like the real truth, you know, experimenting, getting out of the building, et cetera, et cetera. On top of all of that, is there some little known truisms that our founders community do not necessarily or are not necessarily aware of? What would they be if you were to point to one or two things that are like commonalities, but little known? Um. Well, I don't know how much of this is non-obvious, but I think people mistake what they think are signals of product market fit with actual product market fit. And particularly for me, who spends a lot of my time in healthcare, 
there are, Steve mentioned jobs to be done and, and the theory of jobs to be done was popularized by Clay Christensen. And for those of you that are unfamiliar, the notion is that we hire products to do things for us, that products are effectively services at scale. And we hire products to do things for us. Typically the things we hire products to do are functional, social, and emotional. Um, but that when we hire a product to do things for us, particularly, let's say you're a healthcare business and you're selling some sort of digital health solution to an employer, there are typically three levels of hire. There's the enterprise hire, which means the employer or the payer is willing to adopt your technology and bring it onto their platform. That's hire number one. Sometimes entrepreneurs will give high fives to each other and say like, we got into Google or United Airlines. Hooray, we've got product market fit. Not necessarily. Hire number two is getting the employee of those companies to actually utilize the app that they're eligible to use and download it to their phone. So that's a second level of hire. And if that happens, founders are like, great, we're, we're definitely on the right track. We've got product market fit. Not quite. Uh, the third hire is every time those employees decide to fire up that healthcare application and actually use it. And not only that they use it once, but they actually build habits around that utilization and use things more than once. To me, that's true evidence of product market fit is people willing to do things repeatedly. And that if you were to take it away from them, there would actually be meaningful levels of pain if that thing or that offer weren't a part of their lives or their work. To me, that's the ultimate sign of what product market fit looks like, at least at the consumer level. And I think sometimes founders make the mistake of assuming that first hire, that enterprise hire is proof positive or that second hire is proof positive. Really building those habits around behavior is, is where I would draw the line between when it's time to scale and maybe when you're still in search for the right business model. Uh, Steve, would you like to add to that? Yeah, you know, uh, I had this uh, phrase very early on, and, and David just expounded on it brilliantly, is that it's the definition of what a startup is. A startup is a, and we'll parse it when, when I'm done, it's not too long. A startup is a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. So let's start with the first part. And back that back when I first met it, it was heretical. The goal of a startup is not to be a startup. Therefore, it's a temporary organization, right? So, so just the fact that you could bring dogs to work and have free food and whatever, you know, and there's a band of brothers or sisters and small group. That's, you know, there's no such thing as the seven-year-old startup. There's a two-year-old startup with a five-year-old failure. Um, unless, again, you're in life <laughs> sciences, right? Don't spit out your coffee. Um, you know, designed to, designed to search. Well, that's the whole thing about Lean. It's not just designed to execute and build the product. It's searching about the business model. But the most important thing, back to what David says, you're looking for a repeatable and scalable business model. And by repeatable, I mean you, you, you've now found that the same way you create demand on Monday works on Tuesday, works on Wednesday, and actually is repeatable because you've run a ton of experiments to get there. It's not that you just picked the first one and is scalable. By scalable, I mean you put a dollar in and you get in dollars out. And, we, and so that's what that one phrase means. A startup is a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. And that kind of encompasses all those things that David eloquently described. Cool. Fantastic, guys. Thank you. Still not, not disagreeing with, with each other just yet. <laughs> so um, 
I have a, a question uh, from the uh, audience online. Uh, this one's from uh, Miguel Guerrero. He is the co-founder of Otis. Uh, they are digital marketing assistant for small businesses. Uh, his question is, what kind of opportunities do distressed market conditions create for startups that are preparing to scale? What kind of opportunities? Yeah, what kind of opportunities do distressed market conditions create? So my question for Miguel is, what is your what is your cash position at the moment? Because if you want to scale and you want to scale inorganically and you've got a lot of money and there are a lot of other startups in your space where they've got technologies or resources that could be additive to product market fit that you've already found. It could be that if you stick around for another six months, some of your competitors or some of your complementary services could be on on sale. So you could find that some of the downward pressure in the market, at least in valuations, creates opportunities for you to acquire uh, elements of your business that might have taken you a while to grow internally. It also means that some of your competition is likely to go away if they haven't found product market fit and you have. So hope you, hopefully they have bucket loads of cash. I don't think... Uh, <laughs> or at like least a-, a profitable business model or some way of being able to you know, borrow or, or find some, some way of, of utilizing some of those resources to grow because there's a lot of businesses that I think will struggle to find product market fit and won't find investors willing to continue to fund that search with as much patience as they would have maybe two years ago. Yep, agree. And they've got a, quite a few questions on raising capital in the current market. Steve, I was wondering whether you could take this one. This one's from Brian Salee. He's the CEO of Averit. They're a, they're a consulting firm that helps scale-ups add a zero to their bottom line. Uh, his question is, what's the number one thing startups and scale-ups should be doing right now, heading into the fourth quarter, given the 2022 climate that we're in? Well, this kind of ties back to the question David was answering as well is, um, you know, if you're not careful, you may, by the way, the last answer is that your opportunity might be selling off all your furniture for cheap because you kind of missed what I'm about to say <laughs> is that I, I think the whole conversation implicitly says the world's changed, right? Mm. It's, it's not the same world. So if I was on your board, I want you to go up to the whiteboard and make a list on the left of all the things that change about your business model. Tell me about the customers. Tell me about your burn rate. Tell me about, you know, sales cycle. Tell me about, please don't tell me nothing has changed unless you're selling water, you know, and maybe that's changed too. I mean, but, but, but there's a lot of change stuff that's gone on. I want to make sure we agree that you understand all these components of, of the environment around you. Now, once we have that, then we could look at them as opportunities. But we can't start the, the conversation about scale and opportunities, et cetera, um, unless we agree that, oh, no, they're, you know, customers are still buying X or, or you know, the sales cycle number of days to close have, have not changed at all or whatever. Or, or, gee, days to close are longer, but, boy, salespeople are, are like, fractionally cheaper because they're all unemployed. Or, I mean, but that is, we need to start with a new condition. Um, and if we can't have that conversation in detail, I don't want to even have a scale conversation because, again, we should take that money out to the parking lot and set it on fire. That said, once you do that, that is – and this is not a you know a three-week planning exercise. This is at most three hours because you need to go to the lunch. Um, 
you know, we're going to go do the planning and then we're going to go figure out how to run some quick and rapid tests on, okay, you think the opportunity's here, let's go take a shot at them. Does that answer your question? Matt, Matt, can I ask a question of Steve building on this idea? Yeah. Maybe a year or two ago, Steve, it could have been that you could scale your business by adding users without a clear path to profitability. Do you think that that has changed materially in the last six to 12 months? Talk about like the role of clear paths to profit for startups is today relative to what it's been in the recent past. Yeah. And, and David, maybe this is, we're going to agree to disagree. You know, I just think venture and startup or at least venture is a giant Ponzi scheme. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I, what I mean by that is that, you know, good chunk of founders want to build something that people will use and millions of people or thousands of people and they want to change the world, et cetera. With all due respect, your VCs really don't give a shit. Um, I mean, they, they do. Some of them really like tech and whatever, but, but your business model is not their business model. VCs business model and investors business model is how to maximize liquidity by giving you money so they can make a ton of money. And they don't care whether it's an IPO or there was a greater fool theory of the next round was like inflated in a bubble and they got to cash out some percentage of their stuff. And founders kind of forget that. And my point is, in a bubble, look, not only is cash available, but liquidity at absurd valuations are available. And those are disconnected often, which they were in the last year for sure, with revenue and profit. So you could drive for a liquidity event without even having the phrase profit, users, whatever. Now I'm getting back to your point. In most markets now, those heady days are gone. Yeah. And so the so when I was talking about that list of things to put on the board of what you need to be talking about, gee, are we still in a bubble in our small little niche? Probably not, but let's make sure. Oh, now our VCs in our board meeting are hitting us with a stick and using words we've never heard before, like revenue and profit. Yeah. Oh, but we but we had an unlimited burn rate before because they weren't talking about that. They were talking about how our next round was going to make us a unicorn or a decacorn. So, so I'll go back to your question, David, is, is you got to be asking, like, has that world changed? And by the way, if it does, there's all kinds of ripple effects, particularly on burn rates, right? Which means how much money were you spending a month versus the revenue you were bringing in? And again, most of them were not optimizing revenue. They were optimizing the next level of, uh, of evaluation. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, so we, I was I was teaching a class last night at Kellogg and I was going through some slides that were produced by analysts with trends going on in the, the digital health space in particular. Mm-hmm. And like, here's a headline of an analyst chart. And then we'd have a discussion like, what does this mean if you're a founder in digital health? Like all of a sudden, this is the new narrative. What does it mean? And one of the headlines of one of the slides was that I sort of couldn't believe I was reading it. Investors care more about profitability than they have in the last 12 years or 12 months. And I'm like talking to my students about this. I'm like, I can't even believe that we're having to have a conversation about the importance of profitability in a business. But to Steve's point, it's true. I mean, if you can continue to get people to fund you at higher and higher valuations, we were just exit. We're just exiting a world in which the number of users, not the amount of profit seemed to dictate valuation or the price of the last round was a measure of success for entrepreneurs. And you would ask entrepreneurs, like, how is your business doing? And they'd say, well, I just raised $100 million. And the question is like, 
Well, is that success or did you just sell a lot of your business off or did you just make it harder for yourself to exit? Did you just take away your degrees of freedom? It'll be interesting to see how the metrics that matter for entrepreneurs will begin to change over the next six months. And, and the last piece, David, to just double down on that, and, and this is obviously not true for, I'd say, 99% of your audience, but for the top you know, fraction of, of entrepreneurs and venture scale uh, businesses, the fact that entrepreneurs could sell off chunks of their stock at every uh, round of capital took the gun away from their head of having to build a, a revenue-based and profitable company because, hey, I, I just made $10 million. Well, what did you do? Oh, I just increased my valuation because my VCs just sold off $50 million and I got to take some home as well. Um, you know, that's kind of, again, I hate to sound like the old guy, but in the 20th century, because I am, because in the 20th century, the only way you and your investors ever made money is if you went public, that is, had an IPO. And, and M&A, that is a, a merger, was considered a failure, right? Hmm. And, I, and by the way, no one would take you public in, in the U.S. if you didn't have five increasing quarters of revenue and profit. Can you imagine that? And couldn't guarantee another four quarters. You never made money as an entrepreneur unless you had an IPO. And neither did your this notion of taking money off the table for any of them was just insane. Nowadays, of course, again, if you're in the top end percentage of that, uh, entrepreneurs were able to do that, which I think really took the pressure off of them to be able to operate and focus on revenue and profit. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll get back to those desperate, desperate days again. Uh, you know, I think it would provide a little more rigor of what mm. we're trying to do. But again. I just want to go back to building revenue and, and profit was not necessarily the VC's goal in the last bubble. The goal was maximum valuation so they could get liquidated at various stages. Uh, that's very different than building profitable, sustainable companies. Yeah, maybe to add, I've been talking to a lot of founders over the last uh, couple of months, <clears throat> and it seems to me like they're always in a funding raise. Like every, if I say, are you in a raise? I think probably nine out of 10 would say, yes, we're busy raising capital. But they also all recognize that the cost of capital is a lot higher than it was a year or two ago, to your point, Steve, about valuations versus now profits. Um, and VCs and investors are being a lot more selective around which startups they're prepared to back, given the current uh, market conditions. It seems to me on the face value, however, that um, – Startups are raising money almost from day one. I've spoken to, I would say, probably a dozen uh, founders who've raised 12 million, 15 million, 6 million pre-revenue, no product. Um, and it seems very early to raise money. So my question uh, to you and uh, Stephen to David is timing. Like when is the right time to raise money? Is it when you have problem market fits or product market fits and you have the right signals? Is that the right time? Um, and, uh, and you know, or, or maybe is there a gap to start raising capital earlier on so that you get the runway that you need to build a product, talk to customers so that you can eventually get to, to kind of a stage where you're looking to raise series A and B and C and so forth? I think Steve should take this one first. Well, I have an opinion. It, it, it you know, it, it, you know. By the way, there are a couple of answers I like to give. One is either the engineering school answer, which is a one or a zero, or the business school answer, which says it depends. Um, and, and I think, sorry, David, I think this one is a depends. Is a, is a, is a depends answer. You know, I kind of believed as an entrepreneur 
you take the biggest slug of cash when you could get it because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, that was kind of a general base heuristic. Or you could try to play the market and say, oh, no, it's going to get better next week or my valuation is going to be higher and whatever. And I'll have more proof and more evidence and, and, and whatever. Um, you know, but there is one truth that is invariable. And this one I find kind of funny. Regardless of how much money you raise in your last round, you will spend that amount plus a dollar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is your spending expense to the amount of money you raise. And that's okay when the pool is infinite because you could afford to bake in that burn rate. Right now, I would be very, very worried about less so fundraising and more so burn rate. Yes. That is, I'd be, I'd be less focused on, can I raise the next $20 million? Then I could be, oh, if this is a revenue and profit game, you know, what's my burn rate until I'm cash flow positive? That's the numbers in, in this down cycle. If you're an entrepreneur not understanding or not know how to calculate burn rate to cash flow positive, you know, go call David (laughs) (laughs) or or look it up on the web. That's different from how much money can I use to plug the hole? Because that's going to be a very diminishing number for the next year or two. That is my prediction. David. I mean, absolutely 100% agree. Burn rate. Are we agreeing again? Well, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to expand on this in a way that might be slightly controversial, but, but burn rate is, is, the most important thing we're watching right now from the venture standpoint, the more time you have. And Steve talked about the a startup as a temporary organization search to, for searching for a repeatable and scalable business model. The amount of time you have to find that business model and the amount of cycles you have depends on how much cash you've got in order to proceed with that search. The two ways you can do it are raise more money with a high burn rate to give yourself more time. Those days are gone. The other way is to be more resourceful with how many, how short and quick and rapid your learning cycles are getting back to the value of the business model canvas. The cheapest possible way to answer the question is the right way to answer the question. And so if you can stretch your your lifetime, your your life cycle by reducing your cost and extending your burn rate, that's firmly in your control. The only other thing that I will add, and maybe this is a little bit controversial, um, to Steve's point, if you raise $100 million, you're going to spend $100 million plus $1.00. Entrepreneurs feel obligated to spend every dollar they raise, which means we're exiting a period where entrepreneurs raised a ton of money, which meant they hired a ton of people, which meant they had really high burn rates because they felt like that was the way to grow. I think we're now going to start to see people be much more conservative, much more resourceful. And maybe my success metric isn't that I raised a $50 million round and it bought me two years at a high burn. Maybe the new metric is going to be I raised $20 million, but was resourceful enough to make that $20 million last me two or three years until I could find that repeatable and scalable business model. And then the benefit is I sold less of my company. I had more control. And I didn't necessarily have to worry about making fundraising an annual event because we're about to enter a very, very painful period, particularly for businesses in the B and C rounds. I'm not so worried about the seed, pre-seed, seed, and A rounds because a lot of those later stage investors who got burned in the B, Cs, and Ds are going to move earlier. It's the ones that are getting to those C and D rounds that we've seen in astronomical valuations that are going to struggle to bridge themselves to an exit. Interesting. Okay, I've got a whole bunch of questions here that have come in on the studio line. So this one's from uh, Josh Klein. 
I'm Josh Klein, CEO and founder of Have Need, a new consumer barter marketplace for goods and services. My question is, how do you differentiate your thoughts on scaling a consumer marketplace versus, say, a direct-to-consumer brand or a B2B SaaS offering, especially in times of constricting investor capital? Thank you. It's a great question. David, I'll let you take, take this one. Yeah. Um, I was just so mesmerized by the fact that this question was asked by the person and it was in the mic in the microphone. So how do you how do you scale a business in three different sectors in the current environment? Was that the question? Yeah. So if you so basically um so Josh runs a bottom marketplace. So you've got a consumer marketplace <clears throat> and a business marketplace. And the question is in the current market, how do you scale those uh if you have a multi-sided marketplace? Yeah. I mean, let's sort of set cash and resources off to the side. Let's assume that you don't have an infinite amount of capital. One, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it this way and then kick it over to Steve. One element of the business model canvas that Steve touched on in his overview of the nine building blocks was partnerships. Um, usually in B2C or B2B business models, you are not the only business trying to sell to a particular customer. There are others that are doing jobs for these customers that may even have really good relationships with these customers. Um, and particularly in the world that I spend a lot of my time in, in healthcare, one way that you can begin to expand both sides of those business models without necessarily relying on all of your own resources is by being thoughtful about establishing partnerships with others that might be serving similar customers. This has the benefit of not having added fixed cost to your business model, which means that you need to find return on assets for that fixed cost. You keep your costs variable, which allow you to experiment a little more and to search around for potential additional channels or way of growing those relationships in partnerships on both sides of that can be really helpful. Um, and that's a way to manage burn and still explore growth. Steve, Fantastic. You, you want to build on that? No. <laughs> no, I can't even repeat it. Let alone build on it. I thought yeah. it was great. You hit that out the ballpark, David. Well done. Uh, this one's from uh, the CEO of Notosphere. I should sign up. If you feel that way, I should sign off now because it's. The, I'm just going to leave leave you wanting more, Matt. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Here we go. Given the current volatile and uncertain environment <clears throat> that we have. As founders consider scaling, given all the little voices they hear in their head with warnings or things to worry about, do you have any examples of some that you think should be ignored versus others that maybe you think should be paid a little bit more attention to? Yeah, I, you know, David, I'll, I'll take this first one, and, and it's more of a philosophy one. You know, I've been talking about risks and then opportunities and strategy and whatever. Um, you know, but uh, but a startup is all about risk, right? It's all about measured risk and 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 not just random throwing things against the wall. But eventually, you gotta take some, grab some opportunities. You know, I've been talking about preserving cash and burn rate and whatever. But this is a time for opportunities. Um, and um, while I've been talking about being conservative and understanding what the opportunities are, it's not like um, you're operating a small business. And I want to differentiate the two. If you were running a small business, your goal is to make sure it never goes out of business. 
right? Because you're supporting a family, you might have relatives, you know, you took friends and family money, et cetera. Let's be clear. If you're running a startup, right, you're taking a set of calculated but careful risks and leaps based on the best data you could gather. This is that evidence-based process of getting out of the building. But it's not going to be your last startup. It might be if you hit it out of the park. But it's okay. if it's not okay in your head that someday we took a shot at it and we went out of business, I will contend you're operating a small business. Nothing mm. wrong with that, but don't confuse yourself with running a startup. Does that make sense at mm. all? Um, David? we disagree here no i know i well i like that framing actually and, and maybe just using this as an opportunity to talk about um founder market fit yes. i don't know if there'll be right. another another Perfect. chance to talk about this but typically to be an entrepreneur like to be a good entrepreneur i think steve will agree is a calling it's not a career if you're a founder of a startup you are so obsessed with a particular problem that even if the market throws a bunch of headwind at you and creates a lot of problems, you are so relentlessly focused on solving that problem that you will do whatever you can to, to, to find a solution. And I think, and this is not meant to point the finger at the, the person that just asked the question. I'm just using this as an opportunity to, to say this. Um, the ones that are choosing entrepreneurship as a career are typically the ones that are thinking about packing it in when the headwind gets a little bit strong. And that they're, those entrepreneurs tend to be product focused instead of problem focused. My product doesn't seem to be getting any traction. My idea doesn't seem to be getting any traction. Therefore, this is probably not going to work and I'm just going to fold the tent and, and, and go. The ones that are problem focused will just find another way or attempt to find another way to solve the problem. And I think at business schools, speaking with my business school hat on, there's a bunch of things that we can teach you about entrepreneurship. We can teach you the lean startup methodology. We can teach you the business model canvas. We can teach you how to be a scientific in the way that you examine things and teach you about friction theory. What we can't teach you is to have an obsession about the problem. We can't teach you resourcefulness. We can't teach you grit. And I think that sometimes in environments like this, where the headwind increases, this really separates the entrepreneurs who are here for a calling and the entrepreneurs that are here for a career. Mm. Yeah, it's the ones that are hungry that are going to win out at the end of the day. The ones that are obsessed, that cannot stop thinking about the problem. That's like me. Thanks, David. <laughs> this one's from uh, Andrea uh, Burbank, or Andrea Burbank. She's the CEO of Savimbo. Hey, so I'm really curious about a problem that a lot of deep tech founders face, which is how do you sell a novel product when your buyer doesn't know what it is? Like, for instance, back during COVID, our company used to sell COVID tests. And that was really easy. We'd be like, do you want a COVID test? And people would be like, yes. Or they'd be like, no. But now we're selling carbon credits. So we're like, do you want a carbon credit? And they're like, what is a carbon credit? And then it just launches this whole conversation where you you feel like maybe they'll never understand what a carbon credit is and trying to explain it frustrates them so much that you've just lost the sale so what's the recommended approach when your buyer just has no hope of knowing what they're buying my friend told me that buying a carbon credit felt like when he tried to buy bitcoin in 2011 and i was like i totally understand David, you want me or you? I'll take a, I'll take a shot at it. Um, it sounds like she's selling a product, not progress. And 
Uh, it goes back to like the Henry Ford quotes or the Steve Jobs quotes that that customers or consumers don't often even know what's possible. So it's hard for them to articulate what they need. And if you're selling them a solution that they're unfamiliar with, it's hard to sell somebody a solution to a problem they don't know they have. So rather than framing it in terms of the solution, which is a carbon credit, maybe talk about the problem that the company is attempting, attempting to solve, which is how important is your carbon footprint, footprint to your value proposition? How important is your carbon footprint to taxation or cap and trade and regulation? And if it's important and you're looking for a way to reduce your carbon footprint, here is something that we can do to help you make that progress that you're seeking. Not do you want a carbon credit because not everybody even has the the language or the understanding to know how that fits into their life. So speaking in terms of the progress they seek and instead of the product product that you're selling could be a way to get unstuck. Steve? So uh, I'm, I'm not going to disagree, but maybe give you, uh, whoever asked that great question and everybody else listening, a, a kind of a tool to think about this. So not all products fall under the same what I call market type. So it might be when you were in, in selling COVID tests, you were in what I would call an existing market. If you said the word COVID tests in the year 2021, people would say, yeah, how many you got? And how much is it? And can I get it? And like, is it a, is it a antigen or what? I mean, people would know about COVID tests. Now, just let's run that same experiment. And you said COVID tests in 2015. What kind of response would have you got? What's the COVID test? Why do I need one? What to do? What's an antigen? In, in, in 2021, a COVID test is in an existing market. And how do you know you're an existing market? Because potential customers could describe the market to you. Yeah, COVID test. Let me tell you what it does, how fast is it, or whatever. When you're in new market, no one knows what the market is. No one, and, and think about it. And if, in an existing market, people could ask you, is it cheaper? Is it faster? Is it better? You know, is it like 30% new or whatever? In a new market, just like carbon credits, or at least the people you're talking to for carbon credits, you have to explain the market to them. Oh, mm. so step one is discover whether you're in an existing market or a new market, because the same marketing and sales and, and sales and marketing spending are radically different. In an existing market, you just market and, and create demand because here, new and improved or whatever. And there's a variant in an existing market called resegmenting a new market. You found some niche category that actually matters, and, and but it's still existing. But in a new market, spending that exact same amount of dollars with the exact marketing campaign, I go back to light the money on fire because different marketing strategies need to take hold. In a new market, you actually got to do guerrilla marketing. You, you got to figure out, oh, who are the early adopters? Or, gee, I'm talking about carbon credits, but people don't like know about carbon credits. Maybe I should like be marketing. You care about your children's health, or the future of the planet, or something very different. And and you need to be testing some of those guerrilla campaigns before you spend the same amount of money you would have spent in an existing market. That's a shorter version of a long. In fact, if you if you read the four steps of the epiphany, you'll find a longer conversation about market type and how it affects all parts of your sales, marketing and business strategy. And, and maybe just one build on this kind of going back to friction theory. We talk about one of the sources of friction of any new idea is inertia. 
people tend to favor what is familiar and what it is they know. If you've got an inherently unfamiliar idea, the instinct of most entrepreneurs is to highlight the newness of their thing. Look at this whizzy new digital currency. Look at this cool new way of offsetting your carbon footprint. And you assume that the newness of it is part of its magnetism is the audience of that new idea. The more new you make it seem, the less familiar it is and the less safe it is. So one of your jobs as an entrepreneur and an innovator is to attempt to make unfamiliar things feel more familiar. And one of the ways that you can do that, in addition to Steve's suggestions, is try to find an analogy that even though it might not be the same idea, is there something that a carbon a carbon offset or a carbon credit is like that may be familiar? And start there. So you're already anchoring them on something they know. And then just talk about how what you're doing is like that, but for carbon offsets or like that, but for the environment. That might help bridge that unfamiliarity gap that could help you describe what you're doing. Great points, gentlemen. Uh, this next one's from uh, Diana Shapiro. She is the founder and CEO, well, CEO of an AI startup in California called Dynam. Hi, Matt. It's Diana Shapiro, CEO of Dynam AI. Thanks so much for allowing me to ask a question of your guests today. So my question, as a, we're a seed stage startup, um, specializing in an area of artificial intelligence, uh, which is called decision intelligence, where we use AI-enabling technologies to break down the decision-making pro process into the lowest common denominator and then automate that with algorithms so that companies actually need less resources and end up with higher accuracy um, in their decisions. So that could be anything from predictive maintenance to um, a medical diagnosis to um, a process that's labor intensive uh, that you want to optimize over time, make it smarter. And the crossroad I'm at is determining how much money should I raise from investors in this early stage versus just focusing, staying focused on generating revenue from customers, because um, we are talking about scaling the company. I'm so curious um, how they would back into that equation. Um, for us, we're just opening a really small round at a reasonable valuation right now and um, hoping to close that soon. Thanks so much. Bye. So so I heard about two or three different things in that <laughs> conversation. Um, you know, so I, I, I just want to remind entrepreneurs that um, how you pitch customers and what do you think your customer focus is, is sometimes radically different on how you pitch VCs. Um, and, 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 and to be fair, maybe I just didn't understand the, the product itself, but it sounded like some great technology, but a boiling the ocean approach to this works in a series of markets we haven't decided which one. And, and I might have just misunderstood, but, but, and it doesn't mean it's a bad product. It just means... We're trying to set a market till we find this one because I found one of the mistakes startups make is trying to attack, um, trying to turn it into a platform when it actually is just a search for what's the right application area of a set of technology. So you might want to consider that. And, and why I said differentiate that from, from fundraising, at least up to the beginning of this year, is the word AI seemed to be the golden like fairy dust you put in your venture pitch and and dumb money just gave you a check. Uh, nowadays, that kind of moved to the word quantum. Uh, so, so it's not that the, uh, people, and it's very funny because of course, with transformers, AI is actually finally delivering magic, but the, 
but I think the funding hype is kind of <laughs> the shine has gone off a little of that. Um, so I, I first of all would figure out if you were, if you really haven't found product market fit and are still experimenting, and two is think about how the VC pitch might be a little different. But because you're very early on, it, it, you didn't say how much you want to raise because. It, it might be that you could just simply raise the seed round based on some of the early evidence you had. David? I agree. Uh, it was hard for me to wrap my head around it because I don't know where in my brain to put it. And I think to Steve's point, it sounds a little like a Swiss army knife. And if I were you presenting the idea, I would pick one of those use cases, perhaps the one that you've got the most evidence around and maybe tell me that story. But it's hard to answer the question because I, I don't really know enough about the business. So the, the, I think what I heard there was, you know, if you're doing something like AI uh, or democratize access to AI or whatever, you can shove AI into manufacturing, supply chain, financial services, there's use cases pretty much everywhere. So how do you choose? Um, and maybe, Steve, this goes back to market type or maybe it goes back to uh, the total addressable market. Um, how do you choose the right niche or audience that's small enough to lead but big enough to matter for something where you have the, from an applications perspective, you have use cases in like so many contexts and industries. Yeah. So, so again, I think we're confusing the word AI from, with finding product market fit for a application that does something, hmm. right? If you just remove the word AI, we'd have a much more interesting conversation, right? AI is again, the fairy dust of buzzwords. And, and I don't mean that it's not an enabling technology, but that is the key. It's an enabler to something that adds value for a customer. And so the, the meta question you asked is, again, I'm going to give it depends, but I have a personal model on how you search the customer space. And it goes as follows. When you're searching for product market fit and you have a product like just described, it could be used here and it could be used here, et cetera. I tend to tell startups to you got 60 days to do what I call a broad area search. Oh, look at all those markets. Have a good time. You know, find me. See if you could find something where people reliably will grab things out of your hand. Remember, you're looking for a repeatable and scalable business model. Try it over here. Try it over here. Try it over here. Great. After 60 days, tell me which one is the most likely. Then you've got another 60 days to do a deep dive. Great. Let's focus our demand creation activities here. Let's create the data sheets. Let's do whatever. See if you could really get scale here. Not for the next two years, not whatever. Let's try this. And what's really interesting is after you do that deep dive, you will either find you were right, low probability, or you will come back up after like, you know, two 60 day periods, incredibly educated that says, Oh, now I understand. It actually makes a lot more sense in that first market we didn't quite know. Now, that's not the path, but that's broad, deep, broad again, and then pick deep. Does that make sense as a search strategy? You, you, everybody thinks you ought to get the right one first for product market fit, and it might work that way. I just kind of say, it's okay. Do a broad search, but don't believe you're raising money that way unless it's a bubble. It's when you actually have enough evidence have a conversation that says, I looked at this market, I looked at this market, here's why I picked this one, I'm doing a deep analysis here, great, Good time for seed round, or time for maybe a, 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 a pre-seed. David? 
that makes sense at all? Yeah, it, it does. And I think I would only add, if you, Matt, going back to your question about where to begin, typically inside of that exploration that Steve's talking about, sort of going deep and coming up and doing synthesis and going deep again, there's probably one customer segment that feels the pain more strongly yeah. than the others. And it may be a pretty thin slice of that overall market, which is totally fine. If you can find that one customer or a couple customers that are experiencing the problem so acutely that they're going to try the product of a yet up until now unknown startup to solve it, there's a pretty good chance that that's like a good place to at least try to establish some traction. But I think sometimes founders make the mistake of assuming that the slice has to be bigger than it needs to be in order to find those first couple of use cases. Fantastic, guys. Thank you. Uh, this one's from F Frank Arellano. He is the co-founder and CEO of Revolve. Hey, Matt. It's Frank Arellano with Revolve. I have a question for Steve and David. One of our big fears is actually scaling too fast. So well, that's like good because we're the only two that are here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sorry, keep going. <laughs> Too fast. So I'd like to get their perspective on some gotchas, um, what we should look out for, plan for, um, as we do make that move to scale. And then secondly, um, are there particular metrics and things like that that we need to be closely watching? Thanks. So let me start, David, with my favorite. It, it is, you know, the danger of scale is um, if you haven't done you know, getting out of the building, you say scale, I get it. Time to hire a sales force, whether it's inside sales or whatever. And I'm going to hire a professional VP of sales who worked at big company X and they, you know, have the equivalent of a Rolodex and, and now they're going to turn on the machine. And and you go, well, about all this other data. No, no, no. They're going to make, I'm the founder. I no longer have to worry about this stuff. You know, I did some of that out of building stuff myself, but, but we're going to hire a professional to do this. That usually doesn't end well. Um, you know, my first attempt at scale would be with the founders um, and an and, and MVP of scale. You think you have enough evidence. Tell me why. Tell me what, if you can't as a founder explain this and you're now offloading it on a professional with a shiny business suit and a shiny MBA who hasn't been involved in the early customer development stuff, you just outsourced your company to someone who really doesn't understand the basics of what you've already discovered. David, to you. Yeah. And, and this is probably a good time to talk about unit economics and, and the yeah. financial side of a business too. The, the, if, if you have not figured out your unit economics before you start scaling, I would say scale is premature. And this goes back to repeatability that Steve talked about in product market fit, you should at least have some sense that when I invest a dollar here, it nets me $3 here. If you've got some confidence in the cause of effect of which levers to pull and you think you can do that repeatably, that feels like a good time to scale. We've had the experience with a lot of businesses that have missed those signals. They have not figured out their unit economics. They don't know their CAC to LTV ratio. And they think just continuing to throw marketing dollars and getting customers to come to their landing page equals scale. This goes back to stickiness and utilization and lifetime value. And I think um, Steve, I, I know, has a, a lot to say about this, but the the, ca the customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio of a business is really the lifeblood of your ability to survive long term. And if you have not figured that out, at least to some degree, scale is just a faster way to lose money. Great point. 
great point. Uh, this one's from Shira Garin. She's the founder and CEO of Zygo. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for allowing me to ask a question. This question is directed at David, but um, both are welcome to answer. And I understand in friction theory, the idea of marketing to a customer is not only to do with the value you're bringing, but also what consumers are up against in terms of whether it's the value proposition or other factors not considered. I think specifically for me and my company, we are developing an underwater headset for streaming audio, the first ability to stream audio underwater. And I'd be curious to hear what, off the top of his head, what he would see as the biggest friction in our mind. MP3s are the only thing that exist, and we don't really see them as a competition towards streaming, but we think it's potentially non-consumption, the idea that people have been swimming for years without streaming. Therefore, that is our biggest um, current, if you will. Um, thanks again. <laughs> well, first of all, I appreciate the wordplay uh, <laughs> in an in a biz- underwater business. So just for those of you that are unfamiliar with, with friction theory, I'll try to break it down really quickly. The idea is that anytime you're bringing something new to the market, our instinct is that if people aren't saying, yes, we haven't developed the right product, we haven't marketed it properly, we haven't priced it properly. So if people aren't saying yes, we as the innovator need to make changes to the product. We need to make changes to the sales strategy. And if we figure out the right promotional tactic or the right way of framing it, ultimately all of that resistance will go away and people will say yes. Friction theory looks at it slightly differently. Let's assume that you've got a good idea like streaming underwater content or underwater audio. It's just that people haven't quite got their heads around it. There are typically four forces working against any new idea. And we argue in friction theory that they are number one inertia, which is a human being's overwhelming desire to stick with the status quo, despite the fact that they know the status quo is inadequate. The second is effort. How much physical, mental, economic exertion is required to adopt that change? The more effort, physical or cognitive, the low, the higher the resistance will be. The third is emotion, which is the undesired negative feelings we cause in the very people we're trying to help. If we're trying to get somebody to do something new, there may be some fear, some anxiety, some trepidation. How do we overcome that? And the fourth is something we recall reactance, which is a human being's aversion to being changed by others. Doesn't matter how good your data is. Doesn't matter how good the idea is. If I feel like you are trying to impose your change on me, I'm going to resist that change with equal, if not greater force. When it comes to something like, if I'm understanding correctly, sort of earbuds or something where you can stream water or uh, audio underwater, to me, the two bigger sources of, iner- of, of friction is probably likely to be inertia and effort. My guess is with a heavier emphasis on inertia, because it's such an unfamiliar idea to people who have not been swimming with audio. They're going to have a lot of anxieties about like, how is it going to work and how is the quality going to be? And so one of the ways that we can overcome inertia is, again, by making unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar. So, again, not talking about how new and interesting it is and how different it is than what you've already been trying to do, but how it's actually helping you make progress that you knew you wanted to make. There is a Bob Mesta, who's a friend and a, a leader in jobs to be done, along with Clay, and I'll end here, is uh, sort of famous for saying there's no such thing as non-consumption. 
the progress that those swimmers are trying to make, maybe distracting themselves while they're swimming, there are other ways that are they're doing it. They may not be buying products or services to do it, but they are keeping themselves entertained. They are keeping themselves on cadence by doing other things rather than view that you are the first of your kind to market. How well do you understand the progress they're trying to make and speak to that progress instead of trying to introduce a new idea that is inherently going to feel foreign? I don't know if that made any sense. Did it? Made perfect sense. Made sense to me. Okay. Cool. Uh, this one's from Jamshid, uh, Jamshid Ashurian. He's the CEO of Jimmy Ash. Hi, Matt. This is Jamshid Ashurian, founder of Jimmy Ash LLC, maker of not fried, go free food and snack food products. I thank you for creating this space for dialogue and discussion, contributing to productivity and progress. I also thank your honorable guests for their work and contributions. Our business is disruptive and transformational, impacting the global food and snack food industries. Therefore, my question for your honorable guests is, what recommendations do you have for spreading your message and speeding up the scale-up process in disruptive and transformational undertakings? I eagerly listen to the answers. Thank you very much. Steve is the more honorable of us, so he definitely he is right. He is. I was just about to say. So I, I, I'm I'm not sure what the phrase "spreading the message" means. Um, so you know, people confuse you know uh, PR with noise, or you know, gee, I'm buying AdWords or whatever, um, have TikTok videos or whatever. I just kind of think of it as, you know, demand creation. And am, am I creating a brand or, a, or, and, or am I trying to drive people into a sales channel? A sales channel could be simply download the app or click on this button or buy this thing on, the, on Amazon or something else. So, so I would in fact stop using the phrase spreading the message because I think that's a content free phrase. I, I think for you to, Think about this as a business. You need to define what how spreading the message equals action that creates an outcome for your business. Is so. For example, way back in the old days, we used to go to something called trade shows. I don't know if those are still around. Physical places where you had booths and conferences and whatever. And when I asked my head of trade shows, "What do you do?" When I took over this department, she said, "Well, Steve, I set up the booths." I said, I hire union people to do that. If you say that again, you're going to be looking for a new job. I said, we either go to the show for one of two reasons. We either want to create a brand message, that is to position the company, and I could be specific about what that means and what metrics I have, or we're there to create end-user demand and drive it, drive leads into our sales force. And if you're not focused on going to a show for that, why don't I take the money and just hand it to sales because they could hire more salespeople, but marketing isn't going to add any value. I use that as an example that says spreading the message kind of is, I'll go back to the word content free, and, and you might be, you might not be helping yourself unless you define it very clearly about what you want it to do. David, did I make any sense to you? That's great. Um, and, and I don't mean to, to, to pick on the, uh, on the person who asked the question, but I find this a lot is that we tend to, 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 to confuse ourselves with these 
vague phrases that if we're the leader of a startup and we don't understand what the heck that means, the people who work for us don't understand what their objectives are. So we need to be pretty clear about mission and mission intent. You know, our goal is to generate, you know, X customer signups and our goal is to do X or our goal is to create so much revenue and we're going to do that by so many impressions or whatever we believe, you know, our customer acquisition cost will be X and it will drive demand over here. Everybody in their head should understand mission. Our mission is to get X. And the intent of the mission is, gee, if we didn't get those signups, but we still make the revenue, that's okay. But if we got signups and revenue didn't happen, well, it, it, we missed the intent of what the mission was. Does that? And, and mm. so I kind of have people focused on outcomes rather than buzzwords. And I'm somewhat, as you could tell, somewhat of a dick about it. Because, <laughs> in, because in a startup, you don't get too many shots at the goal. I mean, mm. you know, if you have infinite cash, you get lots of shot, shots at the goal. But I grew up in a, in a time where, where you had to kind of think about what you were doing um, in, in a way that was a little strategic rather than a disconnected set of tactics. Didn't mean you were going to be right because you were still operating on sparse data sets and hypotheses and rapidly trying to gather data. But for, but for growth and scale, which was one of the key topics, man, you're about to spend a lot of cash. Or at least, uh, at least cash for in proportion to what you originally had. So I tend to make sure I prepped the battlefield as much as I could. It wasn't that I would hesitate, as I said. I would take risks, but I would take risks based on a whole ton of data I had and some clear objectives of the goals I wanted to set and made sure everybody in my company was aligned around that. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so much for the lecture. Classes, classes dismissed. <laughs> So uh, this one, speaking of cash, um, this one's from Nicholas Blatt. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Kubo Parts. Uh, it's a startup that's created a product that makes your favorite smoothies and coffees at the press of a button. Uh, his question is, once the market fit is identified, what are a few strategies for a startup to scale efficiently on a low budget? David, I'll let you. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd go back to the the answer from before. I mean, partners can be a great way to do it on a low budget. Again, assuming you're trying to minimize the amount of money you have to invest in capital equipment or a sales force or a distribution channel, partners can be channel partners. They can be distribution partners. They can be fulfillment partners. And by the way, just like product market fit can be experimented with, so can ways to scale. And what I would argue is, Maybe don't invest in your own manufacturing facility or your own distribution channel or your own warehouse until you figured out what the right geography is and what the right uh, sort of service levels will be and call centers will be. And you can use, first of all, you can outsource every single aspect of your business model today and you can invest in bringing that function in-house once you've got confident that you confidence that you figured out how that works. So I guess the short answer is, Use partners to figure out how you want to distribute. Use partners to figure out how you want to market. Use partners to figure out how you want to sell. And once you've got confidence that you've got the right strategy in place, then consider taking that variable cost partnership and making it a fixed cost inside of the business. But you've done that once you found, going back to Steve's theme, that repeatability factor in that operational side of the business. So just like the right side of the canvas is the, the the relationship with customers. You want to find a repeatable and scalable model there. 
Also on the operational side, you want to find repeatable and scalable models on the operations. And only once you've got confidence, you maybe take that and bring it in-house. It is my initial instinct based on the question. Steve, what do you think? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting. Imagine he said no. (laughs) If he'd said no, that would have been really interesting, actually. I know. know. Finally, finally a success on the Map Round Show. A couple more questions, guys, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Uh, This one's from Eddie Green. is the CEO of a startup called TextMoto. It's an award-winning enterprise communication, surveillance, and compliance service. Does some cool stuff with encrypting messages from a compliance perspective. Um, So his question is, what attributes, characteristics do you look for when hiring for the head of customer satisfaction? What success metrics do you typically track to know that customers are being well served? Wait, the CEO is not the head of customer satisfaction? Mm -hmm. Hell no. There's, <laughs> so, there's, that there's someone else for that. David. There's someone else for that. Come on, man. <laughs> no, let me, let me let David answer, but let me riff on the point he just made. So if the CEO hasn't been running for customer satisfaction, don't hire that person yet. It's a big idea. Um, you, you know, I, and, and I just want to even make the idea bigger. And I believe as a founding team, the CEO should probably wear every hat as much as they can first. Because if you immediately start differentiating into the departments, particularly technical founders, oh, we'll hire a head of sales. Oh, we'll hire a head of marketing. Oh, that's someone else's job. Oh, customer development, if I give that lift service or even do it, I'll hire somebody to do that. Well, you've just lost control of your company from day one. You'll always be dependent on, I mean, I mean let me tell you the counterfactual. Because if you're a technical engineer and, and you've come up with a great AI program and whatever, and instead of hiring a VP of sales on day one, you actually taught yourself to get out of the building as painful as it was, and you've learned the difference between looking at your shoes and someone else's shoes and then making eye contact. And over time, you, you actually closed the first couple of customers, painful as they were. Now you're interviewing a VP of sales, and they start bullshitting you, and you go, no, 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 you don't understand. I closed the first $2 million deals. Now, what are you going to do for me? That's a much different interview than like you for the first time interviewing a VP of sales, having no idea what they what they do and what a customer sales cycle is. Not that you have to be the permanent salesperson. And the same thing with marketing. We've been talking about running the AB test or running some of these things. Even if you're the technical founder, the fact that you had to go figure out what the first one is and understand that language Boy, when you're hiring the first head of marketing or demand creation or, or scale, and you could have that conversation with them and be knowledgeable about what you know customer acquisition cost is and the lifetime value, this isn't rocket science. Especially if you're technical, you could figure this out in like two days. Um, and that brings us back to customer satisfaction. If you hadn't wrapped your own head around it as a founder, thinking about what matters because you've talked to customers, you've been people screaming at you and product not happy and engineering and think it's done and the customers think it's unfinished, then it's kind of hard to kind of set the criteria. But David, back to you. Did that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, yes, yes. And the only other thing I would add is set the technical side of your business apart. It's, it sounds like you do some interesting stuff with tech on the encryption side. Outside of that source of intellectual property, the one so the other source of intellectual property that seems to that definitely really matters for any startup 
is that you know things about your users and customers that your competitors haven't figured out. And so viewing a customer satisfaction head as just somebody who's there to grow the client relationships from almost like an inside sales perspective, I think is, is um, a miscasting of that role. I think that role is as much about gathering intelligence and future sources of intellectual property about how to serve customers better. So cheekiness aside, if that person is not only listening for growing relationships and solving problems, but also thinking about future inputs in ways in which you can reframe and help customers make progress in in fashions in which your competitors have not figured out, that's adding to the intellectual property of the business because you're continuing to figure out ways that you can help these people make progress that your competitors haven't. Fantastic. So it's guys. not just a sales job. It's like a front end of product development and, and progress making job. Got it. Uh, one more question, guys, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, this one's from Arthur Woods. He's the co-founder of Matheson.com. Uh, it's a startup that helps businesses get to diversity, equity, and inclusion faster. Arthur's question is, uh, in a workplace that is increasingly virtual and cross-generational, how do you think about scaling culture and ensuring everyone feels trusted and empowered in their work? Maybe I'll, I'll try this and then let Steve have the last word. Uh, maybe the scaling culture thing. Um, and I've done a little bit of research on this. So my brother, I've got a brother who we're actually triplets. I've got a sister and a brother. Really? My brother, yeah. My brother's also an academic. He is an academic of South Asian religious anthropology. He's an expert in Buddhism and uh, how culture and religion scale. And so we've actually done a couple of things together on this. And one of the, the areas of exploration is how cultures and religions use ritual to scale. Uh, ritual is the way that culture gets encoded. And a ritual can be something like a daily stand-up. A ritual can be something like the way that we interact with each other on Zooms or the way that we structure emails. But one really interesting thing that my brother and I have been talking about as it relates to culture and ritual to help culture scale is that especially in this virtual environment, it's hard to begin culture virtually. It's easier to maintain culture virtually. And so uh, to me, at least the balance is in how you take things that work in person and scale them through ritual and, and, and habits and behaviors in the organization. But if you're not thinking about designing rituals in order to keep culture encoded, especially as your business grows, the way the intention of the founder scales with the business, the way the mission scales with the business tends to be in these little activities and rituals that extend beyond the founder that allow that mission to proceed as the business grows. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I once wrote a post about this when it's called when the elves leave middle earth. Um, and, and it's, I don't know if anybody remembers the first Lord of the ring where the elves are saying it's the time of man and they're all kind of departing middle earth. And it's what happens when you go from, searching from a business model to executing a business model. Those original people you brought in are, you know, the ones that were sleeping in engineering, they were sleeping under their desk, they're coding 24 seven or whether, or if they're physically at, in the, in a building or if not, you know, working all day and night at, at home. And they were the crazy people who jump on airplanes or make calls or do anything that's possible. And now you're starting to hire people with, you know, who are looking for an org chart and where's the HR manual and, and whatever. And, and by the way, 
companies to scale do need process. Um, it's not that process is evil, but it's that interface between a you know, innovation culture and an execution culture. Eventually, the process people start to dominate, and you forget that these innovation people are going to be essential for the next waves of, of the product. And unlike the 20th century, where that cycle time might have been measured in years or, or multiple years, the cycle time for requiring new product refreshes are sometimes measured in months. So you need to figure out how to build an ambidextrous organization. That is one that can execute and innovate simultaneously. What is it that you say, Steve, that, that execution pays your salary, but so pays your pension? That's it. I was just going to say that. And so... Thank you, David. The, the, so being able to keep both satisfied simultaneously and the best company that actually, at least from the outside, does that is the one I think we all know, which is SpaceX. Think mm-hmm. about SpaceX. Um, they have to do the world's most pristine execution on the launch pad. They're launching five to six times a month from three different launch pads, two on, on the East Coast at Cape Canaveral, one at Vandenberg in California, the ability to take risk there is close as close to zero as possible, particularly including tomorrow when they're going to have human beings on the rocket. So, but simultaneously, they have another half of the company that's actually blowing things up on the test pad. In fact, Elon says, if you're not blowing things up, you're not innovating. Um, and they're building a new class of rocket engines to go into a new class of rockets. So the rocket engine is called the Merlin. And the rock, and the rocket itself is, is called the Starliner with Starship on on top of it. And it's not only does he want people to blow stuff up; he believes if you're not blowing them up fast enough, you're not innovating fast enough. So here you have one half that says no risk in blowing stuff up. <laughs> Those are the wrong people I want in that organization. And another part of the organization, I want innovators who are taking risk and pushing the envelope, but. These groups interconnect at various levels. So, for example, knowing where the ground service equipment needs to plug into the rocket. Boy, the Falcon 9 people figured that out for the last 12 years. So they're informing the new rocket designers. But the new materials the rocket designers are coming up with actually are starting to feed in slowly, even though we don't want to make a lot of changes, are actually increasing the payload capacity of the Falcon 9. And so I use that as that, you know, SpaceX is made of human beings. We could build that into any company, that kind of culture of an ambidextrous organization. Um, uh, Michael Fishman and Charles O'Reilly were the two professors who kind of came up with this idea and articulated it. Um, and I think if ambidextrous is too tough of a word and an idea, think of the idea of chewing gum and walking at the same time. That's what ambidextrous means in a, in a, in a growth company. And so you should think about not just we don't need the innovators anymore and we're going into execution mode, is no, we now need to build an organization that could do both. So that's my closing comment. And I what, what I heard Steve say point. is scaling culture is rocket science. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> or, exactly. Or, or rocket science is scaling culture. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Gentlemen, Mathis thank you. Was great. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, dude. Like, uh, gentlemen, rather, <laughs> dudes. Um, yeah, it's been really great to to have the the interaction with the community. I think we're all trying to figure stuff out. Um, and certainly what you've left me with, and I know a lot of my audience and community as well, is perspective. And I think sometimes perspective is what you need when you're stuck inside the bottle and can't read the label. So, you know, thank you uh, once again for being on the show. I appreciate you both. Thanks. Good to see you, Steve. Good to see you. 
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.